0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about documenting sports history. I could just as easily call this keeping score in 30 for 30 ways because the body of this inappropriate conversations is going to be about one of the more impressive series of documentary films I've ever seen. It's an impressive sports related set of documentaries. But before I go there, the unfortunate thing with timing is that the recording session for this inappropriate conversations pretty much coincided with the verdict in Florida in the trial of George Zimmerman in the killing of Trayvon Martin. And all that sort of blew up right around the time that I was supposed to be talking about something that ought to be fun, sports, sports history, classic sports, things of that nature. And I just don't think I can record today and ignore what happened over this past weekend, even though I've said on many times that I don't believe inappropriate conversations is necessarily a current events show, certainly not a news show. So I don't intend to offer any news but I'll offer uh, perhaps a single piece of commentary, and let me wrap it up first in a fair amount of disclaimer. Nothing I'm going to say should be construed as a judgment against six jurors in Florida. It's not an indictment of the jury system, although questions could be raised there. I think perhaps that the judge might have w- woken up the next day and said, I should have done a better job. There are instructions I could have given. There's you know, decisions in the course of the trial that I made that I should have made differently. Certainly, I think questions need to be raised about not just the prosecutor in this case, in this trial in Florida, but over the course of several years now, the prosecutorial standard in the state of Florida, there's plenty of evidence, at least on high profile national sort of trials that make you wonder what's going on down there. That this case didn't seem to the uninformed viewer, which would be me, to be run by somebody who had a lot of passion for the case seem to be a little casual, seem to not be on top of the game. So you could put blame in those directions, but truthfully the people I think should who should wake up and look in the mirror and say, What did we do here? What where's our accountability? Is probably the legislature in the state of Florida. Because if the law was properly and you know well applied, the prosecutor did everything he could, if the judge, you know, ran a perfect trial, then something's wrong with the state of the law in Florida today. And the reason that I say that ties back to last week's episode where I was playing songs, talking about the political nature of rap music, including the hardcore edge of rap music. And I think I picked the wrong verse from the Ice-T song, Body Count. I probably would have been better served if I'd known that this particular verdict was coming down in this particular way to have quoted the verse that goes like this. You know what to do if a bullet hit your kid on the way to school or a cop shot your kid in the backyard. He even goes so far as to say what would hit the fan, even though he doesn't need to, because it's pretty obvious. And yes, it would hit it real hard. Now, the song Body Count is addressed to a group of political insiders. He's speaking to politicians. He's speaking to the police. He's speaking to the chief of police. He's speaking to people in a position of privilege and power. And he's asking the question, what do you think would happen if it was your kid who got shot walking home? would things play out differently than they did in this situation where apparently six jurors couldn't decide who was the instigator in a conflict between George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin? Now, I don't come to this with any sort of you know, liberal bias. I am a political moderate. The fact that on issue after issue here in the last couple of years, my political moderate stance has me aligned In you know, something of a coalition with a lot of much more liberal people than I am tells you something about the status of conservatism in America today. That just because one guy used a gun doesn't make him a hero any more than just because one guy used a gun makes him a villain. But what really happened in this case? You have a person who saw somebody walking down a street he didn't know, decided that that person must be a bad guy, got his gun, followed the person. Called 911 and 911 said, What? Back off. We've got this. You don't need to intervene. We don't want you involved. He ignored the police dispatch, directions, the instructions, instructions that would have solved everything. He also didn't do what I would consider to be the Christian thing to do and offer somebody on perhaps a misty, rainy night a ride home or some other, you know, much more uh, non confrontational way of asking the question, Something different is happening in my neighborhood. I've assigned myself the role of keeping an eye on things. I want to know why you're here. You can offer help to get to that place. To me, there's a bully in this situation. And if I'm going to react, I'm going to react against bullying. And the bully in this situation is the person who brought a gun, not the guy who brought the bag of Skittles. And the person who is the bully in this situation has made, what, 40-plus calls to the police about suspicious people in his, in his you know, neighborhood, almost all of them people who don't look like him or look like other people in the neighborhood. And I don't like throwing around these words. I'm not going to go in the direction of calling somebody a racist, but he definitely was the instigator. The police dispatcher told him to back off. He didn't back off. If there's a bully in this situation, it was him. And I am frankly flabbergasted that any impartial set of intelligent people listening to testimony and evidence could have come away with the thought that they just couldn't make up their mind whose fault the fight was. So let's say that I grant you everything, because this is how I debate. Let's say that there was a fight. Let's say that Trayvon Martin was coming out on the upper hand in that fight, and that you know George Zimmerman was about to take a brutal beating as a result of the fight. That doesn't give him the right to kill, because you have to ask yourself the question, who started the fight? And you can say, well, hey, we, we don't know who started the fight. Well, I don't know. Maybe the guy who was stalking the other person brought it on. Don't tell me. Don't you dare tell me that the person who just you know had the gall to be in quote unquote my neighborhood started a fight. Now, I will call you a racist if you go there. No, Zimmerman instigated a confrontation. The confrontation turned violent by you know according to testimony, and Zimmerman was on the losing end of that of that violence. Guess what? You still don't get to discharge your weapon, and you still don't get to claim self defense if you did because you started the fight. You can't be a victim exercising your right to defend yourself if the only reason there's a conflict is because you picked a fight with somebody. It reminds me of the dialogue in the movie The Maltese Falcon with Sam Spade and the fat man hashing over what it might mean if Sam Spade refused to give up the Maltese Falcon, if he wouldn't give up the bird. And um, Spade you know, lays it out and says, hey, if you kill me, you're never going to get it. There's no way. I'm the only one who knows where it is. If you kill me, you're never going to get it. And the fat man reminds him that, you know, there's other ways besides killing people and threatening to kill people that you could get, you know, information out of them. And Spade says, well, you know, that's true, but there's none of them any good unless the threat of death is behind them. You see what I mean? If you start something, I'll make it a matter of you having to kill me or call it off. To which Gudman says, "Yeah, you know, that's an attitude that calls for a delicate judgment on both sides because... As you know, sir, in the heat of action, men are likely to forget where their best interests lie and let their emotions carry them away. The reality is, though, that in this case, Spade was being threatened by somebody, holding a gun to him, having him in custody, and essentially threatening to torture him. You know, There's no way the fat man can tell the police later that shooting Spade was an act of self-defense, even if Spade was beating the holy hell out of him. So here's the deal. If you want to play the macho card, if you want to be the big man on campus, watching watching the neighborhood, using both your fists and your gun to keep the neighborhood safe from the riffraff, and you pick a fight with somebody as a result, you know what happens when you're not man enough to see that through? You know what happens when you lose that fight? You take your lumps. You just take your lumps. You say, you know what? I'm not strong enough to win this fight. Every now and then, if I'm that kind of guy, if I'm picking a fight with people who are strangers that don't belong in my yard... Then, you, then every now and then you're going to lose a fight. You don't, get, you don't have the right to pick a fight with somebody and then gun them down the second you realize you're probably not going to win this time. And that is, if nothing else, a lack of integrity. See, the one thing that we can still say it's factually true about George Zimmerman is that he's a killer. He killed Trayvon Martin. Far as I know, those are facts and evidence which are not in dispute. We may not be able to look at him and say that legally he is a murderer. We can't even say that he committed manslaughter in the state of Florida. He was found not guilty of the crime. But that doesn't change the facts. And the facts are he killed Trayvon Martin. And it appears that the facts are he killed Trayvon Martin after instigating a situation where a fight broke out. See, it doesn't matter that Martin might have thrown the first punch. It doesn't matter if Martin threw seven or eight first punches. He believed he was being intimidated. He might've believed he was defending himself against somebody who was clearly stalking him, somebody that a police dispatcher had actually told to stop stalking him. So if nothing else, there's an integrity question that I just want to get out of the way right up front and move on to today's topic. The integrity question is, first off, if you're telling yourself that somehow all of the, the courtroom drama playing out this past weekend means that Zimmerman is not a killer, you've got a problem with your integrity. You've got to think this through and go back to stage one, a man shot and killed somebody else. Everything that happens after that, including being found not guilty of any crime, doesn't change the fact that somebody who shoots and kills someone else is their killer. And of course, the other integrity question is, if you pick a fight with somebody, if you're stalking them, if you're intimidating them, if you're implying through words or through other means that they don't belong in your neighborhood, and then as a result of a physical conflict breaking out on that topic, you shoot to kill. No, I'm sorry. I've got an integrity problem there too. But I'll tell you somebody I don't have an integrity problem with, a different drummer. And even though I was going to hold the different drummer to the end of this segment in sort of a traditional inappropriate conversations sort of layout, I need to go there first to talk about sports instead of talking about something which, well, lacks any of the honor and the dignity of the games. Bo Jackson is a famous enough athlete that anybody who's even remotely interested in sports needs no introduction. A star football player and Heisman Trophy winner from the running back position at the University of Auburn, drafted to play football, and uh, we'll get to the details behind that in a little bit, refused to play for the team that drafted him, ended up playing baseball, going in for a much lower salary uh, at an entry-level position instead of a superstar coronation top draft pick kind of position, became a star in baseball, ended up returning to football and playing two sports at the highest level, and also, in my mind, revolutionized the way sports marketing is done today. He may not have been the first star athlete to be the face of the brand of Nike or similar athletic wear companies, but he's the one that probably is the most iconic. Bono's advertising, for the sake of argument. Now, the thing that I want to name Bo Jackson for and, and talk about him from the perspective of integrity is this. This is a, a kid from the state of Alabama, went to college to play football and baseball, excelled at the highest levels of both, and just wanted to finish his college career. He's not one of those athletes who came out early. He was outed early, and perhaps outed early by some, at least incompetence, if not some, you know, hijinks and tomfoolery from an NFL franchise. Bo Jackson was offered the opportunity to visit Tampa Bay, who was going to have the first pick in the next NFL draft. And he was told that everything was squared away with the school, with the NCAA, for him to be flown out to Tampa by the NFL franchise. He took that trip, and when he got back from that trip, he found out from his coach that things had not been arranged and cleared, that things were not clean and clear with the NCAA. And as a result of making that trip, he was going to have to immediately cut cut short his senior season in baseball. A season where he was setting some phenomenal numbers in place, not just the kind of numbers you talk about in Southeastern Conference history, but in college baseball history. And as a result, Jackson was so devastated at having had his college career sort of stolen from him that he basically told the Tampa Bay Buccaneers right up front, don't draft me. I am angry with you. I am disappointed. I question your integrity, and I am not going to play football for you thinking that he was bluffing, thinking that if enough millions of dollars were put on the front end of a contract or on a signing bonus, that he could be bought. Like really, to be honest with you, most athletes at that level can be bought, that he would eventually knuckle under and sign. What was he going to do? Play baseball. Bo Jackson, giving up at least $5 million to make the decision that he did, lived up to his decision. And granted, Maybe born out of anger, born out of spite, but in the midst of that anger and spite, absolutely and unequivocally born out of an integrity to say, I don't like the way you guys do business and I will not be associated with you. And no matter what it costs me, I will not be associated with you because they took something from Jackson that he was never going to be able to get back. They took away from him his senior year in college. And that's a big deal. It would have been a big deal to me. It was a much bigger deal to Jackson, of course, because he was a superstar athlete, two sports, same campus, and he didn't get to finish off. He didn't, get to, he didn't get to experience losing in the bottom of the ninth inning of an SEC championship game or an NCAA regional, or who knows. He didn't get to experience leading his team to the College World Series. We don't know and we'll never know. And, and the reason I sided with Jackson, despite my disappointment that he wasn't going to play football, because I much preferred football to baseball, as a sports still do, I sided with him because I understood, more now than I did then, actually, what it meant for him to have felt that he had been cheated. And to me, if you tell a franchise right up front, don't you dare do this to me, I won't play for you, and they draft you anyway, it's hard to feel sorry for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for literally throwing away a first-round draft choice. They don't get any NFL compensation for that. If you can't sign the player, you don't get another pick. And they lost their first round draft choice that year. The reason they had the first overall choice in the NFL draft is they were the worst team in the NFL. And being the worst team in the NFL would carry on for a few more years after that. Because of what? I would make the argument that it might be because of nothing more complex than a lack of integrity. Somebody either didn't make a phone call they said they did or lied about making a phone call to begin with or didn't care either way. Or perhaps, in Jackson's mind, maybe, just maybe, intentionally sabotaged the end of his senior year in college so that he wouldn't set some sort of record in baseball, fall in love with the sport, and go off and play baseball instead. But their actions meant that he went off to play baseball instead. So if I name Bo Jackson as a different drummer, and I tell you I'm not naming him because of his uh, incredibly entertaining and impactful advertising or because of anything that he did on the baseball diamond or on the football field. It's almost true because the main reason I'm naming him is because he stuck to his guns and with $5 million cash on the table said no to the money and stood by his principles. And I don't feel if you watch the documentary that ESPN recently produced about him, I don't feel he has as many regrets. I mean, he's still angry about what Tampa Bay did. And again, you never get back those precious moments at the end of a career, whether it's a high school career or college career, whatever whatever that level is, but you don't get those back. Now, to me, for when it comes to sports, I remember Jackson primarily for, for three things, two of them football, one of them baseball. And I'm going to say four things, two of them football, two of them baseball. I should have been a bigger baseball fan of Bo Jackson than I was because I didn't live that far away from the part of the country that he played in when he was – part of the Kansas City Royals organization. I lived in a smaller city not, you know, not too far away that had one of their farm clubs. So I was, you know, in a town that was a Royals town. Kansas City Royals, we were all about the Royals. But at the same time when Bo Jackson finally landed on an NFL team, here I am a Kansas City Chiefs football fan. He lands with the Oakland Raiders. I'm not cheering for Bo Jackson on Sundays in football because there's probably very few rivalries in the NFL that is quite as vitriolic as Kansas City and Oakland. So, you know, it it wasn't really about the location. The things I admired about Bo Jackson had nothing to do with him being part of my team or me being part of the geographical area that he was in. The first time I remember watching Auburn play football Uh, The first time I actually asked where this university named Auburn's even at was because of Bo Jackson. In fact, I can remember playing tackle snow football out in the yard between the dorms when I was in college and in those rare situations where it's a a very snowy day and there's a carpet of snow on the ground where you can really be a little bit more reckless because you know you're going to land on something that's soft. Granted, it's cold, but it's soft. Yeah, you know, To me, anytime you're in that golden, you know, that, that goal-to-go situation, ball in the one- or two-yard line, trying to score a touchdown, you, know, you want to be the guy getting that, getting that football and going over the top and trying to leap over the offensive and defensive lines to get into the end zone. And when you're doing that in the back of your mind, at least in the back of my mind, you're Bo Jackson. You're not making that leap as Jim Brown or any other running back in the history of football. To me, it was all about Bo Jackson from the one-yard line going over the top. And that's my first memory of Bo Jackson as an athlete, a football memory. My next couple of memories, though, would be baseball-related, and I think they're the ones that you can see. If you've never seen an ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, there's a couple I'm going to strongly recommend in this Inappropriate Conversation show, and one of them is that the Bo Jackson documentary, You Don't Know Bo. In this one, you can see the footage of Bo Jackson making a catch in the outfield and actually scaling the wall matrix style. It would not surprise me if somebody, whether a scriptwriter or a director had seen that footage of Bo Jackson and was inspired about that footage to say, Hey, we should make a movie where people do this performing you know, martial arts and in a gun battle because I'd never seen anything like it before. Neither had people who'd been part of you know, major league baseball for decades seen anything like it before. But the one that I remember most, my favorite baseball memory I was watching TV because, again, you're in the Royals' network. You're in the that part of the country. You you get to see the Kansas City Royals on TV more often than anybody else would, even before the days of cable. I mean, we take for granted now that almost every every game's available somewhere. Somebody is televising every Major League Baseball game and every NBA game and every NFL game, and you can buy packages to see all the games or at least all the games from your favorite team. But back then it wasn't necessarily that you're going to see every game on TV, but this game was televised. And I remember seeing the play where a ball in the bottom of the ninth inning at Seattle was hit to the deepest part of the park in the left field area that Bo Jackson was responsible for. And him feeling that ball sort of off the wall and from a standstill on the track, throwing it, not a one hopper, not to the cutoff man but all the way to the catcher in time to throw somebody out who had started off the play with a good solid lead off on first base. There's no way a ball to the gap in left field with a speedy runner at first place who's got a lead off. There's no way you're throwing him out. And Jackson threw him out. The single most impressive defensive baseball play I've ever personally watched. I wasn't there live, but I was there in front of the TV as it happened. The other one, the final memory. You know, the, the one thing that you can do if you're a Chiefs fan uh, is is try to find the rare occasion where it makes sense for to be okay for Oakland to win a game. and Theoretically, you're a Kansas City Chiefs fan. You go in, you want to be 16-0, you want Oakland to be 0-16. That's so sort of the way it works. But there was one game I remember watching that I really wanted the Raiders to win. I felt like it wasn't necessarily going to hurt Kansas City's chance of succeeding, that it wasn't necessarily a game the Chiefs had to have an uh, Oakland loss to pick up ground against their rivals it was going to be okay if the Oakland Raiders beat the Seattle Seahawks and it's ironic that both of these memories late in his pro career that i take the most pleasure in happened in Seattle against Seattle but he literally posterized the Seattle linebacker Brian Bosworth the former University of Oklahoma linebacker whose mouth turned out to be a little bit bigger than his pro career I'm not going to say bigger than his talent, but he wasn't able to back up everything that he said. And Bo Jackson put an exclamation point on that by literally just carrying Bosworth into the end zone for a crucial touchdown in a crucial game. So I've got sports memories of Bo Jackson, things that I think everyone else who, if you were sitting around a bar talking about the greatest things you've ever seen or the greatest plays of all time, would have the same memories of Jackson. But I'm serious when I say when I think of Bo Jackson as a different drummer, I think of him primarily for somebody who quite literally put his money where his mouth is. I've never seen anybody put $5 million of his money there before. And maybe I never will again. The timing for mentioning Bo Jackson right now is that the uh, upcoming weekend, Friday, June 21st, is the beginning of a an fifth annual Celebrity Charity Golf Classic for the Bo Jackson-led foundation, Give Me a Chance. This Give Me a Chance Foundation, not unlike what Derek Thomas's posthumous foundations does in Kansas City, trying to find opportunities to give disadvantaged youth moments of personal and professional growth the support they need, the the hand, the helping hand, the leg up that they need to succeed. Now this uh, event is closed this year, so I'm not you know advertising for the fifth annual Bo Jackson annual celebrity charity golf classic because it's already full. But the timing is right, and it's just another example of things that Bo Jackson has done that scream integrity. Things which you know find a way to give back. Things which are, again, an example of perhaps putting your money where your mouth is. You know, despite my esteem for Jackson, he was not on my original list of different drummers when this particular podcast began three-plus years ago. It occurred to me that Jackson was perfect for the question of integrity. When I got around to having an opportunity to speak about it, after listening to an interview that uh, Art Eddy did on the Masters of None show with Bo Jackson, hearing him speak in person— on um, that particular program, that particular podcast, it clicked. And I said, yes, I need to be talking about this guy. Between that point and now, the Bo Jackson 30 for 30 documentary came out. It didn't exist before. It came out in the, in the interim. And to me, that was a moment of, of clear serendipity. It was a sign that I did need to speak about it, even though I don't normally talk much about sports on inappropriate conversations. So let's start off with what is 30 for 30. The idea behind 30 for 30 was to commemorate ESPN's 30th anniversary by producing 30 films from some of today's finest directors. Each filmmaker brought their passion and personal point of view to each film, detailing the issues, trends, athletes, teams, rivalries, games, and events that transformed the sports landscape from 1979 to to 2009. This coming on the ESPN website describing 30 for 30 and what's next for 30 for 30 appears to be a series of sports shorts. They've done documentaries that have ranged in length from an hour to an hour and a half to two hours, but maybe they've hit the point where it's time for the team, you know, led at least initially by Bill Simmons of grantland.com to come up with even a shorter form that they can deal with even more stories where maybe they don't necessarily have the footage or the complexity to go on for an hour or two hours about it. So that's 30 for 30. My wife and I have a fundamental disagreement when it comes to sports. I'm very blessed in that she's a big sports fan. So I do get to watch a lot of sports and whenever possible live as it's happening. I do DVR events because I don't think that, you know, if you're a fan of English soccer, for example, Every weekend, there's going to be at least one or two games that are going to happen while you're at church. If you go to church every Sunday. So I'm comfortable DVRing a game, seeing what happened a couple hours after it was over, even later that night. But whatever possible, we try to watch live. But the one thing she does not enjoy is classic sports. From her perspective, if we already know the score or if we could easily look it up and find out the score, why are you watching something that's quote unquote old, something that's already happened if we had to play a Survivor style game with our cable TV channels, I think that, you know, I'm pretty I'd be okay keeping ESPN and ESPN2 and maybe even ESPNU on my satellite, but my wife would probably have ESPN Classic on her short list of TV channels to vote off the island as soon as the opportunity arose because I'm I'm that guy. I I've mentioned really in a previous inappropriate conversation years ago talking about Keith Jackson how much I wanted to see an Oklahoma-Nebraska game from 1983 again, or 82. And what really, what ended up happening was I ended up buying a DVD collection from the University of Nebraska that included that particular telecast. Now I kind of want to see the one from 1984, or from the 83-84 season. So to to get the the back-to-back years, the home and away experience, during the period of time when Nebraska had Turner Gill as its quarterback, So I'm a big fan of classic sports. If that particular OU Nebraska game was showing tonight, I would either watch it or record it to watch later. But where my wife and I are on the same page is that these documentaries are a much better version of the classic sports experience because you aren't just watching the telecast as you would have back then. And even then, you're usually not because the commercials are longer than they should be and... Sometimes the commercials interrupt play in weird spots, or sometimes they'll jump forward five minutes to later in the game. No, but the the ESPN documentary approach, though, gives you that behind-the-scenes stuff. It gives you the background material, and it places things in a historical context in a way that watching the game again does uniquely, but watching in the documentary form does perhaps a lot better. The first ESPN 30 for 30 documentary that aired was King's Ransom, the story of Wayne Gretzky leaving the Edmonton Oilers and going to the Los Angeles Kings. It aired in October of 2009. I didn't see it. I wasn't aware of the 30 for 30 until almost the point where all 30 of the originals had aired. I did since see the others, or some of the others. I've seen The You, about Miami football in the 80s, Winning Time, Reggie Miller, and the unbelievable game he had at the end of a playoff game against the New York Knicks in 1994-95, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, The first one that I can remember actually seeing and sitting down and saying, well, I'm watching this. It's a documentary. I need to see it all the way through, was recommended by my boss at the time, who said that I needed to watch the story of Marcus Dupree, University of Oklahoma, the best that never was. And right after it, I saw perhaps the uh, original airing or the first rerun of Pony Excess. Now, The Best It Never Was and Pony Excess, two hours in length. So these are documentaries where even if you cut out the commercials, you put them out in a movie theater, it's theatrical length. You're talking about 95 plus minutes and riveting minutes. Pony Excess talks about the ultimate demise of the SMU football program, the SMU Mustangs engaging in some of the well. The best example that we'd seen at the time, anyway, of corruption in college football and what it did to college football as a game and what it did to the university to have the death penalty imposed upon them. I mean, SMU still is not viewed as anywhere near being a national power, and they certainly were back then. Here very recently, there have been three back-to-back that I can't recommend highly enough. You Don't Know Bo, profile of Bo Jackson survive in advance a look at the 1983 north carolina state wolfpack and their run to the national championship as really the cinderella to start off the notion of a cinderella run and then elway to marino the elway to marino taking a look at the 1983 nfl draft and where two of the best quarterbacks to ever play the game went in the draft and how the draft played out to put them in the particular spots that they were in I'm going to come back to Survive in Advance here in just a minute, talk more about North Carolina State basketball. But I think the lesson to be learned here is that there's no excuse I'm making for any of these documentaries. Every single one of the ones that I've seen has been excellent and worth watching again. There are others. Ghosts of Old Miss, uh, Violence on the uh, University of Mississippi campus over racial integration. I did not see that one. I did not see Roll Tide, War Eagle, the rivalry between Auburn and Alabama, you'd think that with my esteem for Bo Jackson, that that would be an interesting one to see. And as I mentioned, I don't know that much about the history of Auburn. You know, at least I didn't know anything about the history before Bo Jackson. I did see the Fab Five, the story of the five freshman recruits to the 1991 Michigan's basketball team that uh, actually went on to make you know quite an impression, not just in NCAA basketball and in March Madness, but also in the NBA. All of these are good and worth watching. It's hard to imagine giving another network the kind of runtime, the kind of funding, and the kind of freedom to produce this many documentaries. The series is called 30 for 30, but they've made a lot more. They've done more than 60 so far. They have more than 60 that are going to be in the works, plus the shorts that they're planning to produce after that. And the thing with sports is it's not hard to imagine a lot more stories than the ones that have been told, particularly if they're going to be told this well. But you think about it, how many directors, if you just picked a single director and gave him free reign over fiction filmmaking, can say that they produced that many outstanding films in a row with no dogs in the mix. And the caliber of the work here, I think, speaks partly to the project. Certainly credit should go to ESPN should go to Bill Simmons for getting it started, but also simply to the fact that sports maybe leads itself to documentary filmmaking more than I think we probably knew. I think when I was at university campus, if I had suggested that among the best avenues for great documentary storytelling are sports, I think people would have been hard pressed to find a single example that they could use to pair it back to me. Of course, ESPN was just a fledgling network back then and even though i was on the college campus in 1983 watching the north carolina state wolfpack work their way to the national championship at the time i don't think i was thinking hey one day this is going to make an incredible espn documentary it never crossed my mind masters of none log on to mastersofnone.com
1: Our DJ name's real. 95% of them are completely fake. There's someone named Rusty Fender traffic person. Ew! I love Rusty Fender giving you the traffic. I really hope that that guy gets in a bus accident. This would be (laughs) ironic death. Now your name is Bloody Fender (laughs) and you're causing the traffic. (laughs) Okay, then you got people who just steal famous names like George McFly, Jack Daniels, Maverick, and Ernest (laughs) Borgnath. What? All right, I made the last one up. I made the last one up. <laughs> it was just like an 18-year-old intern. Hi, everyone. I'm Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> what? Anything with nice? You need those, like, those short-sounding names with that one, too. Jack Nice. Jack Nice. Benjamin Nice. It really doesn't work. NPR, I try to get edgy. I try to get some cool radio names going on. I'm Bartholomew Nice. <laughs> Bartholomew. Nice to be here on NPR. <laughs> <laughs> I will yeah. cite Wild Bill Shakespeare is an actual <laughs> radio name. That was actually a before and after puzzle on Wheel of Fortune.
0: <laughs> masters of None. Email
1: mastersofnone at simplysyndicated.com.
0: On Twitter, Masters of None. And on Facebook, Masters of None. So if we talk about the improbability of sports being such great fodder for documentaries, I must tell you that I'm so glad that it's played out that way. Because... My memory, which I cherish, I think is probably better than your average person's memory, has proven to me to be in some ways inadequate, at least when it comes to the area of sports and remembering sporting events. And I say that based strictly on the documentary that aired in March of this year, Survive in Advance, a look at the 1982-83 NC State Wolfpack men's basketball team's successful and improbable championship run. This documentary is much more than that. That actually, in parallel storytelling, deals with the reunion of players remembering that run, but also remembering their coach, Jim Valvano, at the very end of his life. So as the story is unfolding that the North Carolina State team is winning enough games to get into the tournament and then doing well in the tournament, it is simultaneously being cross cut with Valvano finding out he's got cancer and figuring out what to do about it and really what to do with his life. Knowing that he didn't have, perhaps didn't have that much life left. It's an impactful film. I don't know if it would have brought tears to my eyes if I hadn't been a fan, not just of North Carolina State basketball, but of that particular team. But I don't mind saying it brought some tears to my eyes. And I think it's genuine. I think anybody who's actually seen Valvano's speech at the near the end of his life um, at the Espy Awards. Would share with me that the, it's hard to find very many speeches that are that impactful, especially from somebody that you might consider to be, quote, unquote, just a sports figure. I, of course, disagree with that dismissive sort of terminology because I think he did one heck of a lot of good in his life and started off perhaps on the national stage because he coached before them to start off on a national stage doing the improbable. The nice thing about the documentary in two fronts. First, it's Valvano. So he's telling stories that are warts and all. He's telling his biggest embarrassments, not just letting the documentary be about his biggest achievements. So they've got footage of him talking about games where he's losing by 48, 50 points. And, you know, some of the more, uh, you know, know, fish out of water type situations you'd get if you were a New Yorker who's moved to North Carolina to coach uh, big time college basketball. But the thing that got me, the other thing that got me was in addition to just how much of the story I didn't know and how much can be learned by hearing players describe from their perspective what was happening in those nationally televised games was how much as a sports fan, your memory plays tricks on you. Um, How many overtimes did I describe uh, happening in the first round game against Pepperdine that North Carolina State literally, where the term survive in advance, kind of came into all of our collective vocabularies. Yeah, I think that my memory is that they played a lot more overtimes than they did. And even though I correctly remember that Pepperdine was the first game in the tournament and I knew who they played in the final four, I didn't necessarily get the other teams correct. And I didn't remember well enough the sequence of events on a 48-team bracket for college basketball because for so many years we've been dealing with a 64 and, of course, now a 68-team bracket for March Madness. So much that you don't remember where the little details kind of make a difference. Oh, I knew in the back of my mind that they played a game early on against a fairly big-time team where they won on a tap-in and they were lucky to win it. And I also remember that they had one game where they won pretty easily and they didn't have any trouble against a team in Utah. I just couldn't remember which team in Utah that it was. And, you know, you don't get UCLA and UNLV mixed up in your head very often. At least you shouldn't. I did. Memories can play tricks on you, and it's nice to have a document in the form of a documentary telling the stories as they really happened and getting the perspectives of the people who were there. I think survive in advance is among the best two hours of documentary film ever shot. It is certainly my favorite two hours of sports documentary. And it's saying something because it is in itself sitting inside a pantheon of very good documentaries really over the course of only two or three years have leapt into existence as ESPN tried to celebrate the 30 years between 1979 When the network started in 2009, I, for one, am glad that somebody decided that it was time once again, not just to look at the scoreboard, not just to hear the play-by-play, but to get to the story behind the story, because sports history is not frivolous. It's not meaningless. It's worth documenting. It tells us stories about people who had enough integrity to stand up, to insurmountable odds and insurmountable offers to do the right thing and to not allow people to profit of doing the wrong thing. It also tells the story of people, you know, bravely, almost foolishly (laughs) standing up to all odds to do the unthinkable in terms of knocking off the biggest names in the sport. And with a group of players that probably most people didn't have any idea whose number goes with which name take a group of, I'm not going to call them no names, but a game of unknown players and turn them into a true David versus Goliath story in a way that also ends with that coach telling his own David, David versus Goliath story, promising, to fight with his very last breath, long after most people would have given up. There are stories like this that happen every day in a hospital somewhere in the world. And it's fair to say that some of the reason that we know these stories and that these stories capture our attention is because there's an element of celebrity involved. There's an element of history involved. And we perhaps shouldn't, you know, shouldn't impose quite so much passion into our games as we do. But as long as we do, there are stories that are there. There are stories that are worth telling. And if they're worth telling at all, they're worth telling well. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS Patient Care and Research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota Chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. You can hear inappropriate conversations on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone android phone kindle fire and beyond on demand and on the go if you don't have stitcher you can download it for free today at stitcher.com or in your app stores stitcher smart radio the smarter way to listen to radio i normally don't cover sports on inappropriate conversations i don't want to uh, interfere in any way with some of the podcasts that i listen to on a regular basis that i so much enjoy for sports chief among them would be the greatest events in sporting history, which can be found at www.simplysyndicated.com. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached on Twitter at IC underscore Greg. I also receive email IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com and the website at inappropriateconversations.org has show notes with comments enabled. Thanks for listening.
1: So you were doing what yesterday? I was playing Oblivion for 12 hours straight. That is the most awesome thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm still working on it. <laughs> I'm the obsessive compulsive type that likes to explore every cave, mm-hmm. every nook and cranny of every mountain, every city, That's why they every back alley. Yes, I you know. know what I like. What? Civilization and a bottle of wine. <laughs> Whole day. But that that to me would be heaven. Because, as I've said before, I can't play Civilization every day, but I could play it for a whole day. If you had a bottle of wine. If I had a bottle of wine. Otherwise, would just you play keep, it? Not like to get drunk, but just to play, have a nice little, you know. It's like a good book. Just like, Yes! Yeah. That's exactly what it is <laughs> for me. You know? And always think that I might play aggressively, and then I never do. <laughs> because like, the wine mellows you out. Because <laughs> the wine mellows me out. It's the most, it's awesome. It's just a really great way to spend a day. (laughs) I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And when you're not listening to this glorious podcast, we would love to have you listen to ours, the Anomaly Podcast. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com.